Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Intelligence Squad podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today marks the 75th anniversary of Britain's National Health Service, an institution which has become a treasured part of our national identity, despite its reoccurring political, financial and organisational issues. To delve into this further, we're joined by political journalist Isabel Hardman and Dr Annabel Showamimo, sexual and reproductive health registrar and author of Divided, Racism, Medicine and Why We Need to Decolonise Healthcare. Here's Annabel with more. Today we have a very special episode of the podcast as we mark the 75th anniversary of Britain's National Health Service. This year also marks the 75th anniversary of the arrival of Windrush, where thousands of workers from the British colonies arrived in Britain to join the NHS workforce. Joining me is esteemed journalist Isabel Hardman, whose new book, Fighting for Life, The Twelve Battles That Made Our NHS and the Struggle for Its Future, explores the intricate relationship between the NHS's medical triumphs and the political battles it's faced over the past seven and a half decades. The NHS is more than just a healthcare system for people in Britain. Most of us in this country entered the world in an NHS hospital, and most of us will die under the NHS's care too. It is a cornerstone of our society, embodying the values of equality, compassion, and universal access to healthcare. And with 2 million employees, it is one of the world's largest employers, superseded only by McDonald's, the Chinese Ministry of Public Security, China Railway and Walmart. Since its inception in 1948, the NHS has transformed the lives of millions, pioneering medical breakthroughs and providing essential care to those in need. However, it has not been without its challenges, as political ideologies and societal changes have shaped its journey. Today, we embark on a journey through time, exploring the remarkable medical accomplishments that have defined the NHS, as well as the tumultuous political battles fought to protect and sustain this cherished institution. Isabel, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for joining us. Your book cuts through so many um, fantastic topics and there's so much to get through and that I want to touch upon. We start the book with the birth of Anaira, born just after the stroke of midnight on the 5th of July, 1948. Can you tell us a bit more about Anaira and her mother and what she and her mother benefited from that mothers and babies before would not have had access to? Yeah, so Anaira was officially the first baby born, as you say, under the NHS. Her mother, Edna, was actually asked by the doctors uh, when 
it became clear she was she was ready to give birth just to hold on for a few moments, which I think anyone who's given birth listening to this will find quite remarkable because that's not something you generally want to do at that stage of labour. But it meant that Anira was born into a system of free at the point of access healthcare. It meant that her whole life is intertwined with the NHS. It meant for her mother that she didn't need to fear whether her child would be able to get treatment because up to that point, uh, really only men, working men, had been able to access healthcare uh, amongst the working classes. And then the middle and upper classes had their own quite costly arrangements for healthcare. And the healthcare that the working classes were able to access depended hugely on location. It was very basic, even if you were able to be treated for certain conditions. If you had, for instance, an industrial accident, which was obviously much more common back then, particularly for Anira's family, which uh, was in a mining community, you often just ended up out of work. And the consequences then pre-welfare state of unemployment were pretty terrifying as well. And so for that family, it went from illnesses being something that could quite quickly signify the end of your working or your entire life to being a lack of fear about becoming ill purely because you didn't think you'd be able to afford treatment. And so that's something that I know that Anira herself is still hugely grateful for, Anira Thomas, and uh, she's obviously celebrating her 75th birthday alongside the NHS. Yeah, it was such a powerful um, opening and that transformative agenda of the NHS um, weaves its way right through and um, we'll come back to it um, at the end. Can you tell me a little bit more about the contributing factors towards the conception of the NHS and some of the biggest obstacles? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a common misconception in British culture that before the NHS there was nothing. And as I say, that there was a national insurance for working men. The middle classes, upper classes either had private medical insurance or engaged the, the private services of, of doctors and hospitals themselves. And British healthcare actually at the point of the foundation of the NHS was among the best in the world. It's just the problem was that a lot of people couldn't access it. And you'd have this movement from the Victorian era onward of interest from the state in public health, uh, realising that health wasn't a private matter, it was something that needed to be organised on a grander scale in order to prevent cholera outbreaks. For instance, I mean, I talked to um, one surgeon, Aradazi, who described Queen Victoria as one of the great, greatest public health doctors in history because of the sudden interest in organising sanitation and healthcare. And that then moved into a system of hospitals which had been developing for centuries prior to that, from religious institutions, great philanthropists and so on, who wanted to ensure that the poor were able to access healthcare. But it was still very difficult to get admission to a lot of these um, voluntary hospitals, as they were known. You needed um, a letter from a patron and the Royal Free, actually, a very famous hospital, uh, the hospital where I was born, that was founded by a surgeon, William Marsden, who was horrified to find a young woman who was dying, having been turned away from voluntary hospitals. Uh, similarly, there were municipal hospitals. And they weren't so much the, uh, the grandchildren of the workhouses as they still were workhouses. And they were where, again, poor people could go, but they tended not to come out of them. It was still regarded largely as a, a bit of a, a life or death sentence, depending on how you looked at it. 
Uh, so it was a sort of patchy provision across across the country. What then really galvanised things was the Second World War. So you'd already had a movement within the 1930s, particularly from socialist medics. The Socialist Medical Association was set up at that time. Um, they'd been pushing for state organised healthcare, but I mean that's sort of the Pope arguing in favour of Catholicism. What changed the wider debate was that society had to come together to organise all sorts of services during the Second World War. Hospitals were brought into the wartime hospital service. Uh, the voluntaries, which were struggling financially, started to see that the benefits of a state organised system. And there was more widely a, a view in Britain that they didn't want to go back to life as it was before the war. People were mingling much more between the classes. There was just this sense, if you read back through you know, the editorials and the times around the time, that, that things had to change. And into that debate stepped a man called William Beveridge. Um, he'd actually been given a job on an um, interdepartmental committee on social services, um, largely to shut him up because lots of politicians found him quite annoying. He was a senior civil servant. But he went away and produced this report on setting up a welfare state that he then basically promoted himself and became a bestseller overnight. I mean, there were queues and His Majesty's stationery office to buy that. And that, that is not normally a place that has people camping out overnight to, to, to buy copies of uh, Dusty Reports. So that's what really electrified the case for a, a state-organised taxpayer-funded health service. Very much at the heart and running through the book is that need to address this two-tiered system of um, healthcare delivery, but also questioning how much uh, the NHS has done that right into modern times. Funnily enough, I think we were both born at the Royal Free Hospital. Um, oh, just wow. a, yeah, just a few years apart. So um, I found that quite exciting. Um, and I also trained at the Royal Free Hospital. So um, it was nice to see it get a mention. So as a doctor working in the NHS, I have tried to educate myself about the establishment of the NHS and some of its history. And I think there are lots of things in your book that I didn't know and I found it very illuminating. Do you think more health professionals should be aware of the history, um, some of which you've just described? And do you think it would change the relationship that the, the country has with the NHS? Because as you talk about quite a lot, it's seen as the jewel in the crown. And do you think this is something that more, more of us, more of my colleagues should know more about? Yeah, I mean, you're busy people, but um, if you wanted to read my book, then you'd be very welcome at Healthcare Professionals, please do. I think there are lots of creation myths about the NHS in British culture and within the health service um, that is useful to address by looking back across the broad sweep of, of history. And we obviously don't have you know, that many doctors who've been in service for you know its full history anymore. And uh, it's often the case that the reality is of what healthcare was like when it started is forgotten. You know, on the first day of the health service, there wasn't actually a material change. It was a change in, in charging, a change in access, but you know, there were no new doctors and nurses. There were no new hospital buildings. People still went to the same places that they'd been before uh, if they could access healthcare. And so there wasn't suddenly this great springing up like sort of mushrooms overnight of, of, of a new physical health service. That took a long time to develop. Uh, it was only in the 60s, really, that the NHS started building new hospitals. As you and your colleagues know very well from, from wherever you're practising, the NHS could do with a, a lot of rebuilding now. We have a lot of crumbling buildings that are either Victorian era 
all from the 1960s, which now really need to be rebuilt because they're they're suffering the effects of concrete cancer and so on. So I think looking back on on that in terms of its physical existence, but also back to some of the reforms, I think of the 1980s and of what didn't happen as well. So uh, there is a quite an unhelpful, I think, belief around the NHS that it's you know, secretly being privatised and that you know actually that you know the Conservatives are just one step away from selling it to the states and and that sort of thing. It's, that's not happening. There are many, many problems with the health service, but, but you know, secret privatisation really isn't one of them. And I think that understanding what the Conservatives have never felt able to do is, is quite important as well. So Margaret Thatcher obviously instinctively was somebody who much preferred a private healthcare insurance based national system. When I interviewed Kane Clark, he said that, you know, Margaret wanted to go the whole hog and privatise it all and have something a bit like the Americans. But she always realised that the British public just wouldn't weather that. But public support for the principles of the NHS have been so high and have only really increased in recent years. A Conservative politician from the party that you know voted against this NHS, abolishing the NHS and setting something else up, they'd probably never be forgiven. And so Thatcher very quickly veered away from the kind of wholesale reform that she might have wanted herself. And indeed she did in many other sectors because she realised that she didn't have a mandate for that. And so she came up with this phrase, safe in our hands, and she really started to believe that. But what she did do was highly significant and something that needs, I think, a lot of people, including those in politics, to, to remember. She introduced management into the NHS because previously hospital administration had been sort of done in this slightly weird sort of post-war kind of way. She was the one who introduced general managers, which I always find hilarious now when you have conservatives say, we need to get rid of middle managers in the NHS. And I think, well, hang on a second, your heroine introduced them. So, you know, what was she so wrong about? Yeah, absolutely. So I found this part around the Griffiths report very, very interesting. And management is something that, you know, you you highlight really well in terms of how it's kind of always been this um, contentious issue. And I particularly like the quote from Sir Roy Griffiths, who um, wrote the report, which you say he famously observed, if Florence Nightingale went with her lamp into an NHS hospital, she would have difficulty finding anybody in charge. Can you elaborate a bit more on that piece of work and how it led to some of the, the reforms? So the Griffiths report was really important in terms of the modern NHS and its genesis really came from Thatcher coming into office and discovering that the NHS workforce had increased dramatically and no one understood why. And so initially it was supposed to be a manpower inquiry. And she approached a number of business people, one of whom initially said yes, but then realised that it would be politically quite tricky. So they settled on Roy Griffith who um, was from Sainsbury's, had um, led a huge amount of um, change there, including work on manpower without sort of upsetting people. He said to her that it had to be about the wider management of the NHS. It couldn't just be about sort of cutting numbers. And so he came back with, as you say, this report on a lack of accountability, a lack of responsibility, a lack of proper structures within NHS management and, and, and recommended uh, a new system of general management in the NHS. And this was this was really important to the functioning of the health service. It did have a lot of unintended consequences. So a lot of people accept now that it introduced a culture of sort of macho management to the health service. 
And I think that was exacerbated later on in the new Labour years. Um, but you had a lot of hospital administrators who felt that they should now behave like somebody on a 1980s trading floor, really, in the way that they managed colleagues, doctors and nurses. And I think nowadays we can see the outworking of that in the, the bullying culture that there is in the NHS. And it's very difficult to find anyone who doesn't think there is a serious problem with bullying in the health service to the extent that actually, you know, the legal work we had to do on the book, this book with Penguin was was more extensive than we had to do with my first book, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. And I think people would expect bullying to be a, a problem endemic in Parliament, but less so within the NHS, unless you work in the NHS, when you think it's probably a bit of a, a miserable fact of life. Griffiths, it was hugely important that some of the ways in which it was implemented were, were not particularly helpful. But from then on, really, there was a a perpetual motion in the NHS because Thatcher then became very interested in the wider organisation of the health service, how care was commissioned, a complacency about the cost of care. How was it that two hospitals operating in the same part of London even had vastly different prices for operations? And why did they not even really you know, compare that with one another? Um, so we ended up with the internal market, um, which was introduced at the very end of the 80s, early 1990s, uh, which created this purchase of provider split um, in terms of the provision of care and which endured to one degree or another, certainly within the English NHS, right up until a few years ago when we had NHS reforms that finally sort of killed it off. That then led to endless reorganisations of the commissioning structures of the NHS, which anyone who's worked within it will know you know, has led to them reapplying for their jobs every couple of years, basically, into a slightly different iteration of, of their organisation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm really glad that you did mention the kind of bullying culture that can exist within healthcare systems and how some of the political wranglings of the NHS has fed into that culture. I think particularly pertinent when we're looking at workforce planning, which I'll come on to in a moment. The NHS that Tony Blair inherited in 1997 was at record high levels of public dissatisfaction. Did the new Labour reform successfully improve access to healthcare and reduce waiting times? And what were the trade-offs and unintended consequences of some of these initiatives? So I think the new Labour years were, by and large, very positive for the NHS. They started, as you say, with real public dissatisfaction with the health service, with high waiting lists, and a fear within the Labour Party and the NHS that public consent for the health service would start to disappear more widely. So... People can, you know, their satisfaction levels can, can ebb and flow, but often their support for the principles of the NHS remain pretty constant. But there was a fear that that wouldn't be the case anymore, that people would start to go private to jump waiting lists. And this all sounds very familiar uh, for those of us 
that you're operating in the environment that we are today, that they would start to go private and think, why are we paying twice for this service that isn't working? So that was the great fear back in 97, particularly by 1999, 2000. It was impossible to escape the sense of decay within the NHS. And you had endless television reports of uh, trolleys lined up in A&E. You had individual stories of people like Mavis Skeet, who uh, had had exploratory operations for their cancer, cancelled and cancelled and cancelled because of a lack of staff. And then eventually in Mavis Skeet's case, her tumour was inoperable and she died. These cases became sort of cause celeb in the media to show that the NHS had just fallen over. So Tony Blair was, you'd be astonished to learn, having a fight with Gordon Brown about money for the health service. Gordon Brown did not want to uh, announce lots of money for it. He wanted to stick to quite austere spending plans. In the end, Tony Blair was becoming so worried about the health service as an issue that he decided to bounce the Chancellor into giving him the money that he wanted. And he went on the uh, then famous Breakfast with Frost program and announced that he wanted the NHS spending to increase dramatically uh, to match European levels of spending. And Brown was famously furious at this, saying that you've stolen my effing budget. But what it did then do was need to, as Blair promised, you know, rises starting at £2.5 billion a year, bringing health spending up to the average uh, of the European Union and an NHS plan from the Blair government, which included targets for training more doctors, a plan to cut back the, the backlog of um, inactive treatment, and a real involvement of the private sector in providing the capacity to do that through particularly these independent sector treatment centres uh, where operations could be carried out at pace to take the pressure off the normal NHS, as it were. That was a huge change in a time of real focus on the NHS. Uh, you had a huge number of targets introduced alongside that. And some of those targets were complicated for the NHS, I think it's fair to say. So talking to emergency medics uh, who were there when the A&E four-hour waiting target was introduced, they have really mixed feelings about it because they feel that on the one hand, it meant that finally the government was taking emergency medicine seriously rather than allowing it to be this kind of weird backwater, even though it was shop window to mix my metaphors um, for the NHS. But it also meant that they were often ending up gaming the system. So you'd be in the middle of treating a patient uh, and a nurse would turn up saying, he's going to breach, he's going to breach, we're nearly at four hours, so we need to move him. And this would sometimes literally involved pushing the patient over a line in the A&E to a different part that wasn't actually technically on paper A&E, uh, where their treatment could begin all over again, or sort of bouncing them up to medical admissions unit or something that had nothing to do with the patient's care and everything to do with filling in a form. We didn't just see huge investment in the NHS, possibly actually, maybe not too much investment, but certainly investment that came too fast that, that wasn't directed in the right direction. We also saw this target culture that was being introduced and enforced in a very shouty and forceful way by the Blair government. We, you know, with a lot of angry phone calls, angry meetings in the Secretary of State's office, and really a, an exporting of political bullying, I think, uh, to the NHS. It's very interesting how that's, those targets help shape the healthcare system. And um, many people will know about the kind of birth of the medical assessment unit and that creating those different pathways. So patients are literally wheeled over to a different part of the hospital to meet targets um, and how that's very much still shaped the way that we we provide care. 
So I just really want to touch on another key theme um, within the book around innovation and medical um, advancements under the NHS. I see a lot of similarities between the history of the pill, which you touch upon, the contraceptive pill becoming available on the NHS and more recent discussions um, regarding access to hormone replacement therapy for menopause, as well as um, access to pre-exposure prophylaxis medication to prevent HIV transmission. You go into quite a lot of detail about the history of reproductive health care, including access to contraception, access in the history of abortion, forced adoption, and even the natural birth movement. Reproductive health is an area that other writers have shied away from. Could you please explain why you felt it was important to include this history? I mean, I think the history of pre-NHS healthcare is one of sexism, because if you were a woman, you were very unlikely to have access to any kind of healthcare. And so, you know, that obviously right up until the 60s resulted in these appalling backstreet abortions. But it also meant that, you know, if you gave birth and you had a birth injury or uh, in the years afterwards, you had a prolapse, it just went untreated. And so I heard this really powerful account from, I think it was one doctor saying that women just hadn't seen doctors for basic health care prior to the NHS. And it was just accepted as the way of life, that they would slow down, that they wouldn't be able to read as well, uh, that they would fall asleep in the evenings, that they wouldn't be very active because they'd, they'd not received basic treatment. And so, I mean, I think that to miss out the impact that the health service had on women is to miss out a really important, not even aspect of NHS history, it's integral to NHS history. And maybe, you know, I don't particularly normally like a sort of identity-based stuff, but I suspect writing it from the perspective of a woman um, who had actually recently given birth herself on the NHS probably made me a little bit more alive to some of these points particularly around maternity and around the sort of debates in maternity. But we also today, you know, one of the big scandal areas in the NHS is maternity. And we have these huge debates over natural births, normal births, um, C-sections and so on. And so it's a, it's a real, you know, battleground to sort of allude to the title of the book that's still hugely important. And a lot of the issues are, as you say, with regards to hormone replacement therapy and so on, unresolved about how much women deserve from the NHS. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, including that um, is very much, um, I think it's important in terms of making people realise that this has been quite transformative to women's healthcare. And also you include something quite graphic in terms of um, the details of, you know, abortion before it was freely or more easily um, accessible under the NHS. Um, you also include a lot of other important innovations and milestones, including that of organ transplantation. How have the advancements transformed the lives of patients in need of life-saving organ treatment? So heart transplants, absolutely fascinating bit of NHS history because I, I came across an article while I was doing the sort of initial research for this that suggested that we have the NHS to thank for heart transplants. Well, I mean, you can get a heart transplant on the NHS, but the heart transplant was not developed on the NHS. Indeed, it, it was first done in South Africa. And, and then a lot of the, the sort of immunological work to, to ensure that the, body, the human body didn't reject this new donor heart was done in, in the US. And the UK actually had a moratorium on heart transplantation for, for a while because of the, the horror it induced. And it was fascinating looking back at this sort of medical moon landing and seeing the response in the medical world. So 
some of those present at the first heart transplant operation said that they had this moment of revulsion when they saw a human body without a heart in it. And that that was, you know, obviously they'd never seen that before. And then they held this press conference afterwards where they were, I think they were slightly delirious because they ended up waving Union Jack um, and it had a sort of slightly kind of street party atmosphere to it, which absolutely horrified the medical establishment. And the British Medical Journal for, for weeks afterwards was full of doctors writing in saying they couldn't believe their colleagues had behaved in this way. Now, I think we're kind of in the era now of celebrity medics where uh, the idea that you would sort of hide your light under a bushel is is quite odd to our culture today. But back then it was it really upset people. And the next successful heart transplant team quite a few years later had to really work out how to manage the media in a way that didn't seem like they were uh, behaving questionably and sort of, you know, betraying the, the oath they'd taken as doctors. But there were, you know, huge ethical questions over what brain death was, because that was something that was considered necessary to diagnose, obviously, before you took a donor heart. And also actually over the cost. And it, you know, so often comes back to the cost on the NHS. The surgeon who did the first successful heart transplant in this country, Sir Terence English, basically had to go ahead and do it really without telling anyone and, it, you know, overriding the wishes of his local health authority. So that there was quite often a kind of a buccaneering spirit when it comes to NHS innovation, similarly with um, IVF where the doctors sort of had to operate in the shadows or in their, in their free time in order to, to get their way and innovate in the way that they felt was necessary for their patients. Yeah, and I think that was particularly, um, it was almost reassuring in a way for, um, to hear because I think it is something that my colleagues and I um, often still struggle with in terms of the red tape in the NHS and trying to innovate and a lot of doctors feel compelled to sometimes step outside um, their NHS role to innovate. You also bring into the story how charities and third sector organisations have often and from the start been supporting innovation within the NHS. Yeah, so NHS charities, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the history of healthcare before the NHS involved a huge amount of charitable work. And so it was inevitable that that was going to continue to some extent. And NHS charities are still a really important part of the landscape, uh, whether it's in terms of the research, the British Heart Foundation obviously being key in the heart transplant story, but but in terms of individual wards, individual units, hospitals will have their own charities in order to to get new areas built to, to be able to offer what they would like in terms of a slightly better service or slightly better accommodation for patients. So the NHS has never been this sort of state monolith that its critics or its slightly more kind of fanatical activists like to suggest it has been. It's always been held together in part by this, you know, this community aspect, this charitable aspect. And I have to say, and I'm sure you feel this very keenly, by the goodwill of its staff who do far more than is contractually obliged uh, just to keep the whole show on the road. I think it is an important thing to definitely uh, pull out that has always been um, more of a collaborative institution um, and, you know, in terms of funding research and things that has always been um, a necessary requirement. Um, I definitely did find the section around the heart transplant and the fanfare around that in the media 
and how horrified the BMA were. Very amusing, given where we are now, as you said, with uh, influencer doctors, as well as people trying to use media to kind of build trust again within the NHS health service. We've already touched upon it slightly in terms of the breakthroughs and the pioneering efforts around um, in vitro fertilisation, IVF. There was a section which you kind of discussed, Patrick Steptoe, gynaecologist, um, who was instrumental to pioneering that research in a bunny egg. Can you can you talk about that section further? Yeah, and so the, the history of IVF actually is a, it's another example of how women have quite easily been written out of the health service because it's often written up as Steptoe and Edwards who pioneered IVF, but it was actually Steptoe, Edwards and Purdy, uh, Jean Purdy, who were the three who were really important to the development of IVF. I wouldn't say on the NHS, maybe on the outside of the NHS. So these were, they were working at Oldham Hospital and this was Oldham gynaecologist Patrick Steptoe and then Cambridge physiologist Robert Edwards and embryologist Jean Purdy. And they set up work in a disused theatre at their local cottage hospital, Dr Kershaw's. Uh, They had local charities supporting them with money in this endeavour and they got a lot of grumbling from NHS colleagues saying that he was, Patrick Steptoe was doing it at the expense of his national health practice. So he would be working sort of early in the morning or after hours on this research. And this fascinating detail that I came across was that um, they used to transport the uh, the embryos and the eggs um, between Oldham and Cambridge in a rabbit to keep them warm, which uh, I hadn't realised that rabbits were so sort of important to human fertility as well. But they're One of their patients uh, was a woman called Leslie Brown. She and her husband had been trying to uh, conceive for nine years. She'd really given up hope, but her doctor in Bristol had had found out about Septo's work and wrote to him. And uh, Leslie became pregnant on the first attempt. And again, it, it, because there was a media circus around this, the uh, the doctors were very mindful of, of, of how wrong things had gone with, with other big medical feats. And so they ended up preparing her for her C-section by torchlight so that no one outside in the waiting media would see her room light up. And their daughter was born, Louise Brown. She was a healthy baby, very exciting. And, uh, you know, the world went mad for it. But the NHS didn't. And really, Steptoe, Edwards and Purdy had to keep lobbying and lobbying and lobbying local health authorities, uh, the National NHS, uh, the Department of Health, to allow what they saw as being an essential treatment for the condition of infertility. And it was just constantly refused because it was hugely expensive, around £3,000 per course at the time. They ended up setting up a a private clinic uh, instead because they just grew weary of coming up against a brick wall with the NHS, which obviously didn't like the cost. But I think there was something else on that as well, which is probably, again, the the sort of a a sexist thing here as well, which was that, you know, women's infertility probably wasn't something that the NHS had to treat. The reflections on IVF are so, so important as um, we're currently in a system where we're having ongoing discussions about what is considered, I suppose, important for the NHS to fund and how often um, IVF is still getting left behind and we still have a bit of a two-tiered system um, of access. I'm very conscious of time and I want to um, very much get into some of the more current um, contemporary issues also. As you note throughout the book, here in the UK, we have such an emotional attachment to the health service. Despite its constant struggles and political battles, 
In the title, you pointedly call it RNHS, and one of the strongest outpourings of this affection might be Danny Boyle's 2012 London Olympic opening ceremony, where nurses and children danced on the hospital beds before gathering together to spell out NHS in lights. He has subsequently stated that he was pressured to remove this sequence in the performance, but he didn't. Can you talk a little bit about um, briefly why you think people are so fond of the health service still and this um, emotional attachment we have as a nation? Yeah, it's a fascinating emotional attachment. And the Olympic opening ceremony really highlighted that of all our public services, this is the one that we see as being part of our identity. I mean, we didn't have people jumping into a giant net to represent the safety net of the welfare state or, I don't know, you know, a celebration of state education. All of those are an important part of the the post-1945 world, but it's the NHS that we fixate on to the, you know, to the point that the celebrations around the anniversary have been really big, even though the NHS has, has been in a real pickle at the moment. And, you know, we've had things like Justin Bieber helping the NHS choir get to the Christmas number one a few years ago. I mean, I'll be honest, that is weird. Um, and it's it, it's something that we we should sort of take a step back from and say, you know, how have we ended up with this sort of veneration of a public service? And it's fascinating because I think it's it's part of that visceral feeling that people have that, I think at any point it could be taken away. And that was a something that was really successfully propagated by Lyrin Bevan, who set the health service up and, and by Labour ever since, and aided hugely by the Conservatives obviously voting against the, the, the bill at second reading and its final stage report stage and third reading in, in the House of Commons back in 1946, even though they, you know, they had, to be fair to them, signed up to the concept of a national health service. They just didn't like this one. And so there's always the sense that the opposition party, or as they are at the Raventine government, might try and snatch it away at any moment. But we still have a folk memory, I think, of, of that time that I described to you at the start of the podcast, where it was so often the case that if you got ill, that was it you wouldn't get the treatment you needed. You couldn't afford it. And you had this fear of not being able to pay and stay alive. And so that's why we're particularly attached to this because it is life and death. And it has become something that regardless of the state of the institution, we are proud of and almost unable to acknowledge that there are other health systems in other countries where the populations have a much more business-like attitude towards their health systems rather than a sort of a cultural veneration. Yeah, and it is very, um, it is fascinating. Um, you touch upon how it is evoked at various points with COVID, how the messaging was protect the NHS and also how um, it was plastered on the side of a bus when we were in discussions about Brexit um, and how this is used at various points by people on various sides of the political spectrum. I just wanted to touch upon the current workforce within the NHS and how it continues to operate at such a pace and level of stress. We have increasing numbers of healthcare workers opting in favour of maybe a slower pace, better work-life balance in Australia, New Zealand and Canada. And it's the NHS, as you articulate quite clearly at the beginning of your book, has always been sustained in part by overseas workers. And I think it's still at about a third or just over a third of people being trained overseas. Um, how long do you reckon this mode of operating and loss of staff is sustainable for? And is the NHS sustainable without reform? I think we've got to a point where politicians have had to accept, as we've seen with the recent publication of the NHS workforce plan, 
that you can't just hold a system together on the goodwill of exhausted uh, workers. And you also can't just rely on other health systems um, to supply you with their workers who they need as well. And that's for a health system that's been running for this long to not have proper workforce planning in, you know, as respected a medical training system as we have um, in this country is, is ethically unacceptable on, on so many levels. And so, you know, we now have some kind of workforce planning. It's definitely not fully funded. And there's a lot of problems in terms of um, ensuring that you're not just recruiting people only for them to, to go out the other end very quickly when they realise that it's a toxic place to work and have a retention crisis in the NHS. I think in terms of wider reform, we are also getting to a slightly more mature um, state of debate. You can hear Big Ben chiming above me, actually, as I, as I talk some in um the House of Commons at the moment, we are getting to a slightly slightly more mature political debate on the NHS where there is an acceptance that it's not just about the money, it's about where the money goes and about the fact that we are too loaded towards acute care in the health service at the moment at the expense of community and preventive services that could see patients at a much earlier stage of their you know, journey possibly even before you've actually developed an illness um, or an illness related to another condition such as obesity. And so the debate is becoming more about shifting or at least changing the balance of those resources from acute towards preventive um, and community services. And that's something that we've heard a lot about from uh, Wes Streeting, who may well be the next health secretary on the basis of the the polling uh, at the moment. And uh, I think that's really welcome because for too long we've had this kind of phantom debate about privatisation, which isn't happening and not about the things that really are happening and really are an issue in the health service. Yes. So the the concept that you're talking about very much um, upstreaming and that idea that we could do more around um, prevention within public health and um, also maybe redistributing towards kind of social aspects also of um, of the care system, which don't generally get a looking. Isabel, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was Isabel Hardman, author of Fighting for Life, which is available now. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Dr. Annabel Shoemimo. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>